in your Bibles. Good luck. <laughs> By the time we all find the book of Haggai, we'll have moved on to another book of the Bible. It is a needle in a haystack, but I'll give you some clues. Uh, if you find the book of Matthew and turn back three books, uh, you should find yourself in Haggai. Two, two short chapters, and I had the advantage of putting a ribbon in my Bible today. But seriously, we're going to uh, consider three important background questions uh, this morning before we uh, go expositionally through this little book. And uh, one of the first questions, I guess this is not one of the major three that I want to consider this morning, but I, I want to kind of do a straw poll to, to see you know, how, you, how you are accustomed to pronouncing uh, the name of the book. Uh, it's, uh, one option is Haggai. Is that the way you've heard it said? Do you want to raise your hand? You can. All right, Haggai. How about Haggai? Ah, more than I thought. Well, which is it? It's actually both. So we'll just let it be. So whatever comes out of my mouth is what it's going to be for me. It'll be my truth, okay? Uh, you can have your own truth uh, regarding the pronunciation of this, this short little book. Uh, I have really wanted to preach from a minor prophet for some time. I think probably in uh, the 10 years of preaching here in this uh, auditorium, uh, this is the first time I have turned to a minor prophet and uh, really wanted to. In fact, I've never been able to settle on which prophet to preach from until we were going through Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer quotes a significant section of Haggai. And uh, as he does so, he does so to uh, encourage us to listen to the word of God to listen now when God is speaking softly because there will come a point in time when God will speak and all reality will be shaken. And so it's, it's good to listen to the gospel tones, the, the, the gentle tones of the gospel now uh, while we are able. And so let us uh, look at a couple of these questions this morning. Um, the first question I want us to consider is what is Haggai or Haggai? Haggai is a book of the Bible named for a prophet, named for a prophet who wrote an inspired message from God to God's people, Israel. Now, every new parent, every new parent should have Haggai as a top pick for a name for their child. If they've got a boy, it should be in your top five. Uh, his parents were actually pretty creative because the name means festal or festival. Nice, nice name for a little boy. You know, I know some little boys are quite festive, right? Pretty, pretty energetic. Uh, uh, but he lived during a time period of return from exile. The exile uh, did not happen overnight. Uh, it was a long, drawn-out period, and I'm going to speak a little more about some of the circumstances next week on why, why there was a need for an exile. But for now, we should just consider that the return from exile was long, and uh, we need to just consider the general context of this book. And important to know that the return to Canaan took approximately 100 years. They had been... Uh, 
removed. The nation had been decimated. The city had been burnt down to the ground. And they had been removed from the beautiful land, the promised land. And uh, now they were in a progressive series of rebuilding. And uh, so if you're there in Haggai, look at verse 1. We have a mini context that's provided for us. And Haggai's message came at a time period of rebuilding in a time of lull in which the building had ceased for a period of time, and it was to spur activity again. And so let's read verse 1 in which it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so this is kind of the, the, the context in which we, we pick up this book this morning. Um, the building had come to a stop. There was significant powers in the world that had authority over Israel at the time, and they had initially given some permission, and then they took that permission back. And now there was a in limbo as to, can we really rebuild this temple and the city and everything? And uh, it's important to recognize that uh, there were several world powers, and one of them was, uh, was Babylon, which is modern Iraq. There was also the Persian Empire, which was as modern uh, Iran and Iraq, who were dominant players at this time. But God moved in the king of Darius, who was a king in the Persian Empire, to push open the opportunities for countries to reestablish themselves. So I want us to just consider some of the context, but Haggai is also mentioned in a parallel book of the Bible. Uh, it's more historically written. It's the book of Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 5, we, we read a little bit more. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Zadok, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And in this, we see that Haggai was also contemporary with Zechariah. And we may know some of the prophecies from the book of Zechariah that anticipate the second coming of Christ. And so they were writing together during this time period. And both men were used by God to stir up the spirit of the governor, the priesthood, and get everyone going again to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so what is Haggai? It is a book that's focused on renewal. And it is a book that's encouraging it is a book that is also encouraging us to be watchful. And so I picked this book, looking at some of those themes, recognizing that we are in a time period where some of these themes could be helpful for us as a church body. 
Renewal, revival, cannot be manufactured. You can manufacture a temple. You can manufacture a wall. But you can't manufacture the motivation to do so. That is something that has to come outside of one from God the Holy Spirit to push and move people to do what they ought to do and to follow God's commands. And if you look down at verse 14, I think you're still in Haggai. Look at verse 14. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. It was the Lord and him moving and moving in people's spirits and stirring them up. And all the trouble, I think, that we have experienced. And so some of the reasons uh, I've wanted to speak on this text, I realize that we have been through some wearisome and dry times. We have been through some difficulties as a country, but also as a people here in Honsdale. We have gone through seasons. I'm looking back even four or five years ago and recognizing some difficult times. But I am also encouraged that through perseverance, the Lord is able to stir up within our hearts and cause us to rebuild the people of God for this community here in Honesdale. I'm encouraged that it is not up to us individually. It is the God of heaven who controls the hearts of kings who is going to work within our hearts to cause us to be renewed. It is him who sends the showers of blessing. And desperately we need those, do we not? We need showers of blessing. And so we turn our thoughts towards God is the one who who renews. He is the one. And I think there's encouragement for us in this text. Now, you could at another time go to the book of Ezra and see some of the prosperity and the the encouragement that came out of the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra 3, 3 through 13, they, they had organized a special worship service for the dedication of the new foundation that was going to be laid for the temple. And uh, they worshipped with trumpets and cymbals and sang responsively the Psalms of David. And they sang things to the Lord like, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever and ever. And at this celebration, all the people worshipped. Ezra uh, shares a fascinating observation. And I'm going to project it up here on the wall Uh, Ezra 3, 12 to 13. Just listen to this. Very fascinating. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses and old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. We had, in this, in this text, we have people in their 80s who remembered the foundation. The foundation and the city and the beauty of the old Solomonic temple. It had been overlaid 
in gold. It shone. You could, you could be miles away and see the sun glinting off of the, the glory of that temple. They knew that the resources were not going to be adequate to build it to the same luster and glory as Solomon had had it. And a lot of these people, though, were also overjoyed and their emotions just let loose, right? And so a conflict of emotions are going on here. And I, I really think that it's important that, that uh, in, when we think about our context, I also think that we also should be very careful that when we, we don't allow an unfavorable comparison to take place between what the tabernacle used to be and what the tabernacle may become. What often happens is we can have some negative energy that can come into play where we remember some of the good things that God had done, but sometimes we don't always remember the, the good days as well as we think we do. Sometimes the good days were not always good days. There was a lot of unhealth here at the tabernacle at one time. But yet we are at a place of crossroad where we can look forward and we can see folks who are starting to come in and find us. And we can recognize that God is doing a building of a foundation which will be his church. And so we need to take on an attitude of worship and gratitude. We need to weep with those who weep. We do remember some days have gone by, but we ought not to allow that to overweight ourselves with and destroy a hopefulness in the future. And so I think this is a very helpful book for us at this time to think through that we become one unified body with Christ as our cornerstone. We are building a new generation of believers, and I do believe our time is coming. I believe that TBC is here to create a joyful community of believers who share God's saving grace with the world. But it's going to take a heart that's engaged and, and fully focused on serving Christ. And so I encourage you, and this book, I hope, will be an encouragement to you to make your, your love for Christ a high, high priority in your life. Watchfulness, another element of, that's in this book, the new temple was built in uncertain times, very uncertain times. The work of God even continued as empires were shifting and changing. And we ought to have a watchfulness, even if our world becomes unstable. God is still at work. I remember in 10th grade, goodness, that's a while ago now, we studied ancient history, and I remember studying the Assyrian Empire. And I remember our textbook talking about all the different lands the Assyrian Empire had taken over, and they skipped over Israel. And I had been in Sunday school. I knew what was going on, but my teacher didn't. And so I took my Bible to class, and I showed my public school teacher. I said, look, look what the scriptures say. Hezekiah was there, and the death angel came, and God preserved his people. He was overwhelmed with that observation, and it struck him uniquely that there was something that the Bible had to say. That's remarkable. The Bible does have things to say. 
And I share that, that there's also the reality that there's some things that are going on that the Bible doesn't record. And that's equally of value to note and take interest in. Well, if you recall, the transition from Babylon to Persia, the handwriting on the wall. Remember the handwriting on the wall? Today, your, temp, your, your nation is going to be given into, an, into someone else's hands. That's what Daniel said to uh, Belteshazzar. And that's what happened. King Cyrus of Persia came through. Well, we, we know a little bit about King Cyrus and some of what he did. But he had a son named Cambyses who expanded the empire past the Israel boundaries and overtook Egypt and went down to Ethiopia. On his way back from Ethiopia, he died. And it created all kinds of consternation. And it's about the same time that Haggai was written, about the same time uh, as Ezra had been written. And Cambyses died, it left a void, and there was an absence of power to control and to lead the nation. So someone by the name of Darius stepped in. He was an officer in the army and a near relative, and he claimed the authority of the throne. It, we don't know exactly how and how long it took him to consolidate his power, but there was revolts, there were, were uprisings as people tried to see if there was weakness in the new government. And what we do know, if you look at Haggai 1.1, it was the second year of Darius the king that permission was granted for Israel to rebuild its temple. And when I look at that, I recognize that even in what appears to be chaos in our world, we need to remember that God is always at work in a million different ways in which we cannot even begin to comprehend in what he's doing. And even if the nations rage, God is set on building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we need to take courage in that. And today, if we are God's house, if you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a certain hope, a settled hope, and we don't need to worry. We can be watchful, but don't let the watchfulness overtake us with consuming worry. God is on the throne, and his son, Jesus, is ruling. In Paul's magisterial book about the church, the book of Ephesians, Paul described the construction of the church in this way. He said in Ephesians 2.20, he said, The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So, a little bit of what is Haggai. Let's, let's think through a little bit what his occupation is as a, as a prophet. What is he... And what is prophecy, for example? What, what, why is this called a minor prophet? Well, we need to think a little bit about what the occupation of a prophet was. And we often associate a prophet with a foretelling, a foretelling of the future. And that's not wrong, but it might be incomplete if that's all we think about in terms of what a prophet did. The apostle John, for example, was a prophet. He was also an apostle. The apostle John, the majority of his writing was not foretelling, was it? What other books did he write? 
He wrote the gospel. He wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. He also did some foretelling of God's word. Not just foretelling the future, but calling people to respond to the truth that's revealed in God's word. Haggai was not a false prophet. That's why his little two-chapter book is in our canon, our collection of scriptures. 2 Peter 1 describes prophecy in this way. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Really important text to understand the authority that came uh, to the prophet when he spoke, not his own interpretation, but the very words of God. And so there was necessarily tests to help one understand, who do I listen to? If we don't have the recorded words, how do I know what I'm hearing is from God? Well, there were two tests. They had to have 100% accuracy of t- foretelling the future. If they got 98, it wasn't good enough. It had to be completely, 100% verifiable that they were able to predict the future that clearly. Second, another test was that they had to have 100% consistency with prior revelation of Scripture. They couldn't just kind of start their own thing. And I think this is important. When we hear people talk as if they have some sort of insight from God... (laughs) We ought to be asking ourselves, are they consistent with what God has been saying? In fact, in the Old Testament, if a a mixed message came from that was like not 100% pure, that prophet was considered to be a false prophet and was subject to stoning. They took God's word and his revelation seriously. And a prophet had something to say. Now, a key understanding to the prophets and their bold, direct confrontation with God's people is that they were talking, and you look at Isaiah, you look at Jeremiah, and you see see a lot of their recorded preaching. What they were doing was they were calling Israel to come back and be faithful to the covenant relationship that they had made with God under the Mosaic law. And the covenant included blessings. It it included curses. And so often the preaching to Israel consisted of very strong warnings and calls to come back and be faithful to the covenant that God had made with them. Now, I think it's important for us to see and understand that dynamic Because prophecy is never the product of sinful people's imagination. Its origin is always from God, and it is about God. This past week, we we began this series of essential beliefs for Christians on midweek, and we talked about the Bible as being uh, revealed, of revealing truth to us that's necessary for us to understand who God is. We don't want to get that wrong. 
It has to be clear. And so the prophet had a big task, a big task to represent God well. What kinds of testimonies did they represent about God? And I want us to turn in our Bibles. Now, we're going to leave the book of Haggai for a moment. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. Revelation. I think we need to go to verse 19, or chapter 19, excuse me. Now, I want us to see verse 10. We saw this on Palm Sunday, and I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I'm not going to spend lots of time on it this morning, but I do want you to see what John says in verse 10 about prophecy. Look at verse 10. It says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Spirit of prophecy. Now, that word spirit has not the idea of, like, essence. It is, I believe, more in line and really ought to be a capital S. It is the Holy Spirit that gives prophecy. Throughout the book of Revelation, you you see the word spirit often without the word holy beside it. So this is not a wrong way to think about it, but it's really important that when we look at the pages of the Old Testament and we see, we see the Spirit moving within writers, that we understand that this is anticipating there's testimony that we can find about Jesus. In the Old Testament, we can see it in the New Testament, that the Spirit is really concerned with us seeing Jesus and seeing the truth of the gospel message. Just... Real quick, please humor me this morning. I think we can do this, right? Turn with me in your Bibles to the beginning of Revelation, and I want you to see just the five times that this phrase, testimony of Jesus, is used. It's only, in the, only found in John's writing. And in John chapter 1, we see that the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This witness to Jesus and who he is is central to the revelation of God and his spirit. Let's drop down to verse 9. He uses this again. I, John, your brother, partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. And what does it say? And the testimony of Jesus. The testimony. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 12. Jeremy preached from Revelation 12. Now, he didn't hit this verse in the chapter, but in verse 17, in verse 17, we see the rage of the dragon against the children of God. And we see the rage in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring 
on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Holding to the testimony of Jesus. Really, what it all comes down to and where we will experience persecution as believers will be whether or not we hold the teaching of Jesus in high regard. That we will not bend, we will not flex, that we will stay loyal to Jesus, even if we have to go against family and friends and loved ones, we will stay faithful to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Go over again, chapter 20. This is the last text I want you to turn to. Revelation 20. I also preach from this text, but I didn't spend a lot of time on this uh, phrase here either on Easter Sunday. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. See, in time gone by, the law of Moses was the testimony about Jesus. We just spent the book of the Hebrews talking about how it all points to Jesus. And it's so important that we recognize now that Jesus has come, elders who rightly handle the word of God and present the word of God ought to be directing our thoughts to Jesus. He is the testimony. He is the one that bought us and and was resurrected for us and is coming again for us. And so we preach the new covenant reality out of the Old and New Testament. We preach it with its blessings and its curses, and Jesus is coming again. Prophecy matters because it's declaring a testimony about Jesus. And if that's so, we ought to be a hearing people. We need to be hearing. Prophecy is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It calls listeners to respond by faith to the authority of Christ, the Son of God. I want you to turn with me again to Romans. Romans chapter 10, please. Usually, I stick around in one text of scripture. This is not my normal. But I want you to see Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. The necessity of preaching the truth about Jesus. Paul highlights the prophetic quality of preaching by saying in verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I want you to see in verse 14, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
they have not all obeyed, if you will allow me to paraphrase, they have not all obeyed the testimony of Jesus. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so we have those words, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel, the testimony about Jesus, is not just information. The Holy Spirit moves with the content of the gospel and takes it and in the heart. It becomes real. It becomes living. It becomes something I respond to by faith. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why preaching needs to be clear. It needs to be very direct and calling us to respond to the testimony of Jesus. He bought us, he died for us, and he expects us to live for him until he comes. That's a prophetic message, folks. It's something we have to hear and listen to as New Testament, New Covenant believers anticipating his return. We are not Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant. Christ has already come. And so now we transition looking for the second coming of Christ, knowing we have the direct access to the throne room of God by the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is our blessing, but it is also our responsibility. And so whether we're in Revelation or we're in Haggai, we should be hearing anticipation, testimony about Jesus. Jesus is the risen king. He's coming again. Jesus is the risen king. That's what the gospel declares. That's what the testimony about Jesus is. And so this morning, just, again, I'm trying to answer some, kind of, kind of direct our thinking so that when we go to the book of Haggai, we don't look at it and say, well, you know, that was just written to the Old Testament folks. There is a prophetic message that transcends and is available for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching for doctrine, for reproof, and instruction, righteousness. And so when we go to the Old Testament, we shouldn't just groan, we should rejoice that there is meat as something here available for us as New Testament believers. Uh, there, is, there are some within the broader evangelical world who say that we ought to be unhitched from the Old Testament. We should just let that go off into the distant sunset. Absolutely not. God's word is settled and it is forever. It is available for us, and it, we would do well to listen to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who inspired those words. And so I want to kind of my last thought here this morning is, and question is, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Now to do this and to think about this, I want us to turn back to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, please. Mark 1, 14 and 15. This will be the last text that we turn to this morning. I didn't lose you in Haggai, did I? You were able to get here to, to Mark? Okay. In Mark 
chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, we have, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's gospel is very concise. It's very direct. And the word here that's translated in my translation, proclaiming, Jesus proclaimed, is sometimes translated the word preaching. And there was a bold proclamation in the first century when the son or the heir was born to the emperor, there was a public proclamation that was made in all regions of the empire. When the son was born, when the son came of age, and when the son ascended to the throne, there was a proclamation, a preaching, if you will, of a new reality, a new set of circumstances that is going to affect everyone's world. And that's the context of the word preaching here. Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come. It's now in what he's saying. And this is going to make an impact on everyone's world. The time is fulfilled. Now, loads of people talk about the kingdom of God. And uh, when I hear them use the phrase, sometimes I... I want to say, you keep using that word. And I don't think it means what you think it means. The kingdom of God is a metaphor, but yet it's real. But it's a metaphor which refers to God's rule and God's reign. Jesus taught his disciples in the Lord's Prayer to pray these words, did he not? He said, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Now, Roman Catholic theology tends to identify the church with the kingdom of God. However, the scriptures do make a distinction between God's present, his coming reign, and even a distinction between that and the church. And so I think it's not helpful at times to describe the church as God's kingdom because we are not the king. He is the king. We live underneath of his rule, but we are not the kingdom. And I think it's important for us to understand. So when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand, he's referring to his authority as the heir apparent of the emperor of the universe so that when he was crucified and he was buried and he was resurrected and he ascended to the throne of God on high, he began his rule, his active rule, over the world. And when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand, he's referring, it's imminent. It's going to break forth with my resurrection. Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand that when Christ ascended to the throne, before he even ascended, didn't he say to the disciples, all authority is given to me on heaven and earth? Go ye therefore and do what? 
make disciples. We don't build God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom through us. The kingdom of God is what creates the church. And one day, the king of kings and lord of lords will descend and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And he will rule and he will reign for a thousand years on this earth. And we will rule with him. So when you hear the phrase kingdom of God, you have to understand it ultimately talks about God's rule. And how God dealt with the world in the Old Testament era how he's dealing with us in this era, and how he's eventually going to come and set up his kingdom on this earth. Boy, why am I going into all this detail this right now? <laughs> all, of these, all of these separate threads interact in the little book of Haggai. The king of kings and lord of lords is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of the majesty of high. The nations rage, but God is still building his church. God is still calling people to the saving knowledge of himself. And we have an active role to play in that. We can look around, get our heads down in the, the newspapers and become overwhelmed with the America that we don't recognize, or we can look to the pages of Scripture and take courage that he's coming again, that he's actively ruling right now, and he's calling us to a place of renewal. He wants us to be filled with his spirit and on fire for the glory of God. This is our moment to follow Christ, to stay close to him, be watchful, and take encouragement in what he is going to do within this body and in this community. I pray, and I'm praying, that God will do great things. So what is Haggai, the prophecy, and the kingdom of God? Well, it's this. Haggai is an Old Testament prophet who God preached who preach God's rule to God's people. It's really important for us to take note of this. Jesus is on the throne. And I want to close by reading Psalm 2 this morning. Why do the heathens and the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bands apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. My king, that's Jesus Christ. He is ruling and reigning in the heavenly Zion, and we look forward to seeing his return.